Well, have you seen the latest trend in Christmas trees? It's the upside down Christmas tree. That's right. Home Depot's online catalog advertises several varieties of artificial upside down Christmas trees. It's perfect for people who lived in cramped quarters and who want to conserve floor space in their living room. And hey, I'm in favor of it for one big reason. An upside-down Christmas tree provides extra room for the accumulation of presents. And who isn't for more presents? Actually, I believe our American pastime of gift-giving can be traced to a deeper desire. I believe it's a reflection of a longing in our hearts to worship God. What is worship? But receiving a gift from God and then giving a gift to God. Tonight, with presents still to be presented, I want to make four statements and then elaborate on each. First, Christmas is about worship. Second, Christmas is about giving. Third, worship is about giving. And then lastly, giving is about worship. Now, here's my first statement. Christmas is about worship. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, we read these words. When he again, when God brings the firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus Christ is known as God's firstborn. And not because he was born first. Actually, the biblical use of the term has nothing to do with birth order. It has to do with title. It's a title of family privilege. The firstborn was the father's heir. He had special prerogatives and responsibilities and authority. Under and after the father of the family, the firstborn was the man in charge. Thus, Jesus is firstborn, or he is the head of all God's creation. He's the man in charge. And according to the writer of Hebrews, when Jesus entered this world, he did so to the worship of angels. I'm sure you're familiar with what happened that first Christmas outside Bethlehem. There in the cool night air above the shepherd's field, suddenly the dark sky began to glow. The glory of God illuminated the countryside. The curtain between the spiritual and the physical, the barrier between heaven and earth was suddenly lifted. A choir of angels serenaded stunned shepherds. Luke files this report in his gospel. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace Goodwill toward men. I've always pictured sort of a, a heavenly riser. Maybe ten rows deep. Filled with an angelic choir. You know, a couple of hundred voices. Worshiping God at the Savior's birth. I figure God did what some colleges do when basketball season rolls around. Rather than suit up the entire marching band, they just substitute an ensemble. A few horns, a couple of tubas. Maybe a few drummers. 
It's a skeleton crew that can play the fight song at times, but a full band with a halftime show isn't really needed. That's what I always thought happened that first Christmas. That God just sent the pep band down to Bethlehem. But that's not what we learn here in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. Let me read this verse to you again very carefully. Listen closely. When, when the Father brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all the angels of God worship Him. Did you catch the key word? Maybe I should do it again. Let all the... Did you catch the key word? On that first Christmas, the day Jesus entered the world, how many angels worshipped Jesus? The answer is all. You got it. Every single angel throughout God's vast creation lifted up their praise. And that's a lot of angels. There are a couple of passages that actually try to quantify the number of angels for us. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 makes this statement. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Heaven is so full of angels you can't count them all. The angelic population is innumerable. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, John sees God's throne in heaven. He says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. John has been carried to heaven. He's trying to count the angels enthralled in the worship of the Lamb. But he gives up as soon as he starts. He begins with a rough estimate. Oh, he says, Man, that must be 10,000 times 10,000. And yet, obviously, that's too small, and so he throws in, yeah, and thousands and thousands. That's another way of saying, hey, there were more angels here than I could ever count. Apparently, the throne of God in heaven has a larger seating capacity than the shepherd's fields outside Bethlehem. On that first Christmas, a mere multitude was actually on location at the birthplace, praising God. But the scene in Bethlehem, according to Hebrews, was just the tip of the iceberg. For at that same time, the angelic choir made their announcement to the shepherds. Hordes of angels stationed in distant galaxies all across the universe turned their attention back to planet Earth to the little town of Bethlehem, to a stable, to a baby in a manger, and they worship Jesus as firstborn, as head and chief of all God's creation. On the first Christmas Eve, a call went out throughout all the angelic ranks and outposts all across time and space. If there are alternative universes with alternative realities, the angels there were also put on notice. Every angel in every sphere heard the command from headquarters. It was a worship code read. The writer of Hebrews recites the actual declaration. It was a PO, not a purchase order. It was a praise order. 
heaven heralded, let all the angels of God worship him. Here's what we know for sure. Not a single angel anywhere angels dwell kept silent that day. Every angel under God's domain worshiped the Savior who was born in Bethlehem for Christmas is about worship. I love Mary's song. It's called The Magnificent. Shortly after being told by the angel that she had been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and a child had been conceived in her womb, Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth. There she composed a song of praise and poured out her soul to God in worship. Luke chapter 1 verse 46 records her words, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Her soul magnified God. Oh, this is a great definition of worship and praise. It's spiritual magnification. To worship is to amplify or magnify God's grace and glory. Worship sees God through the telescope instead of just the naked eye. It's the admiration of God for all that He is and does. Worship is the magnification of God. Oh, worship is like me putting on my glasses in the morning. Details that were obscure now come into focus. Any haziness gets dispelled. God's glory becomes clearer when we worship Him. You know, at times, our vision for God, our vision of God can grow distant. It can feel foreign. Has God ever felt distant to you? The world around us hampers our spiritual awareness in the midst of the immediate and the tangible, we lose focus on the God who is eternal and spiritual. You know, it always amazes me on a foggy day how I can drive down the Stone Mountain Freeway and not even see that huge chunk of granite next to the road. I mean, an object as colossal as the mountain gets hidden. I mean, you can pour enough moisture into the atmosphere that even a mountain will disappear. And you can pour enough doubt and fear and worry and lust and envy into a human heart. And their perception of God will dissipate. They'll end up with a near zero visibility. That's not the way God created their eyes to see. And yet worship is the perfect antidote. Praise cuts through the haze. It readjusts our eyes on God. Worship highlights God's graces and attributes. It brings the God from whom we've drifted back in proportion. He becomes bigger than we had allowed Him to be. Worship rips away the limitations and the boundaries we imposed on God's mercy and His might. Oh, a season of worship opens the door for our limitless God to once again fill up our minds and dominate our outlook and occupy our hearts and stir up our souls. At Christmas, I think about the moods of worship. You remember the shepherds who witnessed the angel's testimony. Luke chapter 2 verse 20 tells us, Then those shepherds, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. You know, I think one of the beauties of the Christmas story is its ability to surprise us over and over again, just like it did the shepherds. Christmas quickens our faith. 
The coming of Christ into our world, into our lives, reminds us that God is willing to join our predicament. That means there's hope. That means impossibilities are possible. Christmas, it quickens our faith, but it also quiets our hearts. For Christmas is a mystery, isn't it? Ah, that a holy God would dive into our evil world. That the God who is bigger than the universe itself would make himself small as a baby. That the infinite would become an infant. This casts over us a humbled hush. God is so much more. He's deeper than we thought. Remember the postpartum Mary. After the angelic visitations and after the birth and after the shepherds. When she had time to think it all through we're told... Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. What a combination. Christmas quickened the shepherds who rushed to praise the Lord while it quieted Mary who hushed to ponder all the things she had seen and heard. These are the moods of worship. We praise and we ponder. We marvel and we meditate. Christmas conjures up both. This is why I say the angels and Mary and the shepherds all teach us that Christmas is about worship. But here's a second statement for you tonight. Christmas is about giving. Granted, this is stating the obvious. I mean, who in the United States doesn't understand that Christmas is about giving? For a month now, we've been shopping until we're dropping. We've been running all over the place buying cheap stuff. Hey, hey, here's some stats for you. Every Christmas, Americans use over 28 million rolls of wrapping paper. 28 million. And almost 17 million back packages of tags and bows. And it all goes under 35 million Christmas trees. And some of those Christmas trees are upside down so they can gather more gifts around them. And guess where I got these statistics? Interestingly, they appeared in an issue of Garbage Magazine. It's a trade publication for trash collectors. Hey, witness a Christmas morning around the family tree and the pile of garbage that gets accumulated and it reminds us of this truth, that Christmas is about giving. Once a lady, she was rushing to send out her Christmas cards and so she ran into the store and she grabbed a box of cards off the shelf without reading the wording inside. Several days after sending out hundreds of these cards, she picked up one of the leftovers, and she checked out the message she'd sent. She was horrified when she read, this card is just to say, a little gift is on the way. <laughs> hey, for a lot of people, Christmas is about all those little gifts. I read of a couple that live in Anthon, Iowa, Richard and Donna Heyman certainly understand the giving spirit associated with the Christmas season. Anthon's a farming town. Oh, about 650 people. Richard is a retired farmer. One Christmas, the Haymans gave a most unusual gift. They paid the November electric bill for everybody in their town. The bills totaled I'm sorry, $25,000, and they were due on December 25th. Well, the week after Christmas, a mound of thank you cards covered Richard's desk. His giving spirit had touched a whole town. 
When asked why he did it, Richard was quoted in USA Today as saying, The Lord has been very good to us, and so have the people of this community. So I always thought we ought to be doing something in return if we could. You see, Richard understands that Christmas is about giving. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is a favorite Christmas passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus was the child born to Mary, but he's also a gift that has been given by God. Christmas is the celebration of God's great gift. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the greatest gift that's ever been given. Christmas is about giving. And let me make a third statement tonight. Worship is about giving. I mean, true worship is the giving of my attention and my affection to God. It's the bestowing of honor upon Him. It's the offering of praise to God. Worship is the giving of myself and what I possess to a God who is worthy of it all. Giving back to God from what He's given to me is the very heart of worship. Whether it's our money or our time or our talent or our respect or our love. Worship acknowledges that all blessing comes from God and it should end up glorifying God. Worship is the completion of that circle. You see, you're not a serious worshiper if you don't have a giving spirit. As we mentioned earlier, Christmas is about worship and it's about giving. But we don't often put these two together. I mean, we worship on Christmas Eve and then we do our giving on Christmas morning. But worship and giving are really one and the same. Real worship is all about giving. Remember throughout the New Testament, we're told that we'll be rewarded for our labors on earth with crowns in heaven. But there's a special purpose for these crowns. And we find it in Revelation chapter 4 verse 10. For there John is before God's throne when he sees 24 elders. These are faithful leaders in the church, and so you would expect them to have a few crowns, a few rewards. But it's interesting then what they do with those crowns. John, watch these elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worshiped him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Here's the lesson for us tonight. The elders worshiped God by laying their crowns at his feet. They gave back to God what he had given to them. You need to listen to your elders. Worship is about giving. Worship is the ultimate reason that we serve and labor for the Lord. And I hope you're trying to rack up as many crowns as possible. I sure am. I don't want to finally get to the throne of God and get caught empty-handed. I don't want to stand there before my Lord Jesus with nothing to give Him. Imagine, you finally arrive on the heavenly shore. It is wonderful beyond description. Words cannot express. You look into the Savior's face. You see the scars on His brow, and in His face, and on His hands, and in His feet. You're overwhelmed with love and appreciation for what Jesus sacrificed for you. 
there you are, reduced to tears. Man, you're nothing but a melted pile of gratitude. And out of the corner of your eye, you see those elders over there. They're laying down their crowns. Man, you think, that's what I'll do. I'll give him my crowns. But what if you got no crowns? While on earth, you did nothing that Jesus could reward. What a sad, empty feeling that'll be to come up blank at such a strategic moment. To have nothing with which you can say thanks to Jesus. This will be the ultimate embarrassment and frustration. Several years ago, I experienced some of this. Prior to Christmas, my brother and I, we agreed not to exchange gifts that year. I mean, we, we normally buy each other piddly stuff anyway, so why not just save the money, you know? We'll, we'll give each other a handshake, slap each other on the back. That's good enough. Merry Christmas. Well, I followed through, but apparently his wife didn't get the message. And so on Christmas Day, guess what? She hands me my present from them. And I had nothing with which I could reciprocate. I felt like a heel. And that's just my brother. He's the one that should have felt like a heel. He didn't follow through on the deal. And yet if I had those kinds of emotions before my kid brother, how will I feel before Jesus one day if I'm there and I've got nothing with which I can reciprocate His kindness and love and sacrifice for me? Hey, never forget... Biblical worship is giving back to God some of what He's given to you. It's about giving. Oh, the wise men, they understood this. When they reached Jerusalem and inquired into the whereabouts of the promised deliverer, they told King Herod, For we have seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. Notice their intention there. It was to worship Jesus. And yet remember how they did it when they arrived in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.11 tells us, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They see and they fall down and they worship and they give gifts. For the natural outgrowth of their worship was a giving spirit. I mean, how could they visit God's chosen and linger in the presence of royalty without giving a gift? Make no mistake about it. Worship is about giving. And here's my final statement tonight. And this is the twist that I've been leading up to. Giving is about worship. Even though you might not realize it, our propensity to get caught up in the gift-giving at Christmas time is partly the result of our latent desire to worship God. In fact, I believe that madness on Black Friday, you know, consumerism on steroids, that temporary insanity that overwhelms normally sane people and drives them frantically around town trying to find cheaper stuff, I believe that's really just a dim reflection of a deeper desire, a longing to worship. This is why I can never be against folks shopping and giving gifts at Christmas. I love giving gifts. And trees are good too. That's a grand idea. Turn them upside down as far as I'm concerned. More room for more presents. I like giving and receiving gifts. 
But you know, sadly, for some people, gift-giving around the Christmas tree is about as close as they'll ever get to real worship. I realize some folks, they give gifts to show off. Or others might give gifts to impress other people or or one-up the other guy. But aside from obviously tainted motivations, what's really wrong with me taking my hard-earned cash and acting unselfishly? I think it's a wonderful thing to give gifts. Why not buy gifts that will bring joy to other people? I believe any time we give, it gets our hearts closer to an attitude of worship. Don't recoil from Christmas. I don't even worry a lot about its crass commercialism. I take a different approach. I try to recapture the deeper meaning that lies just below the surface of all the gifts and all the giving. See, presents are great, but greater still is the presence. The Spirit of the Savior who inspires all this giving. When Charlie Brown couldn't get into the Christmas spirit, his buddy Linus asked him what was wrong. Charlie Brown told him, the season is getting me down. There's too much commercialism. No one is sincere. And there's just too much rushing around. You ever heard that? Linus takes his friend to task. He says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. (laughs) There are Christians that act just like Charlie Brown. Hey, enjoy the season. Enjoy its festivities. Just don't divorce the traditions from their underlying significance. C.S. Lewis once made the observation that early in a child's life, he can love Santa Claus and reindeer and elves and new toys and gingerbread houses and the baby Jesus in the manger all simultaneously. All these images cause no conflict in the mind of a child. But when he or she gets old enough to recognize the factualness of the one and the fantasy of the other, at that point, the child decides which is going to take precedent. If the person puts the factual first and keeps it forefront, they can still enjoy the festive aspects of the season. But if a person puts the fantasy first to the exclusion and neglect of Christ, then all of the other traditions, they lose their luster. And before long, the holiness of Christmas becomes hollowness. Lewis writes about Christmas traditions once they've become divorced from Christ. He says, they will have taken on an independent and therefore a soon withering life. He understood The truth that everything in our lives that we treat independent of Jesus will soon wither. Christmas should be a winsome holiday, chock full of wonder and wistfulness. But remove Jesus from its center and all of the gifts you give and all of the cheer you spread won't bring you one slither of happiness. It's when we recall that all our gifts are a reflection of God's greatest gift. It's when our holiday cheer is a reflection of our worship of God. That's when every gift, both given and received, becomes something sacred. I've heard it said, He who has not Christmas in his heart will never find Christmas under a tree. Ten days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, 
a group of citizens in North Platte, Nebraska, they heard a rumor that soldiers from their hometown would be traveling through on a troop train headed on their way to the West Coast. 500 citizens from North Platte, Nebraska turned out at the train depot with gifts of gratitude for their Nebraska boys who were headed off to defend their country. But when the train pulled into town, it wasn't the Nebraska National Guard on board. The soldiers on the transport train were from the Kansas National Guard. Nebraska and Kansas, they don't necessarily get along with each other. Once the townsfolk realized the mix-up, there was an awkward moment or two. That is, until one woman handed a young man that she'd never met the gift that she had brought for her own son. Following her example, 499 citizens copied her generosity. There were hugs and prayers and concerns shared all around that day. The encounter in the depot was a spontaneous act of genuine love that touched both the soldiers from Kansas and the citizens of Nebraska. The people of North Platte brought their gifts thinking that those gifts would be for their own sons. But in the aftermath of such a moving moment, nobody could argue that God all along had intended those gifts for someone else. Actually, they honored their own sons by blessing the boys From another state. And this is what we should be doing when we exchange our Christmas gifts. For a few hours from now, you'll be parked around your Christmas tree with the people you love. And in those few magical moments when the gifts and the love that prompted them are opened and enjoyed, I hope then it hits you that all this gift giving is really about someone else. The happiness and the excitement we relish around the Christmas tree is the same thrill that God wants us to experience every day when we give and live for Jesus. It's true, giving is about worship. For what is worship but opening a gift from God then giving a gift to God? Think about it. Every time we worship Jesus, we gather around a tree. Another tree, though. The tree on Calvary. The old rugged cross. We gather around that tree. And it too is a tree adorned with bright lights. Come to this tree and you'll see mercy shine. And righteousness twinkle. And grace glow. That dull rugged cross is indeed a colorful tree. And there are gifts there too. There are gifts under that tree. The Savior has gifts for you and me, forgiveness and power and the peace of God and freedom from sin and joy and life and wisdom and love and lots and lots of love. And before the blood-stained tree at Calvary, you'll want to give a gift to the Savior who hung on that tree for you. You see, the problem at Christmas time is not all the shopping and all the gift-giving that occurs. Giving is about worship. It's a reminder of something deeper. It's when we miss the meaning of the giving. It's when we see the sign, but we refuse to head in the direction that it's pointing us. That's when all of the gifts and the parties and the decorations and the holiday cheer that we can muster leaves us empty and hollow. Christmas ends up a drag. You know, each year scores of people suffer from Christmas letdown. 
But don't blame Christmas. The problem isn't Santa Claus and commercialism and shopping malls. What spoils Christmas is not that we get caught up in the wrong stuff. It's that we don't draw the right conclusions. We fail to recognize that giving gifts to people we love is really just a prelude to worshiping the God that we love. Where do you think the spirit of Christmas generosity and giving originates? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And the greatest gift ever given is a Savior. All our Christmas giving harkens back to Jesus Christ. Well, here are four statements I hope you remember. Christmas is about worship. Christmas is about giving. Worship is about giving. And giving is really about worship. Well, let me close with a hot new gift suggestion. It's just Christmas Eve. There's still about three more hours left. Some of you still probably need to get out there and grab one more. Let me give you a suggestion. Maybe there's somebody on your list you've forgotten. And when you think about it, this guy, he's a tough guy to buy for. Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. He's the ruler of creation. Jesus is a tough guy to give a gift to. I mean, what can you give him that he doesn't already have? There is one present that Jesus wants most. There's one present he wants most. And that just happens to be the one present that you can give him. And that's your worship. Christmas is about family. And it's about faith. And it's about worship.